Uh, this morning, we are continuing. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Leviticus, um, which I went through my records. I don't think I've ever preached on the book of Leviticus in all my days. <laughs> Been bad it now for 10 years. Leviticus, to me, is the book where all my good intentions to read through the Bible in a year die. <laughs> like, I'm doing okay till I get to Leviticus. And then it is just sheer gutting it out to get through that book. It is God's Word, it's needed, it's good, and it's excellent, and we're going to be specifically in the book of Leviticus chapter 23 today. Um, This is part of a two-part sermon series where we've been preparing our hearts for Thanksgiving by looking at some of the great Thanksgiving feasts in the Bible, Thanksgiving dinners in the Bible. Last week, we looked at the link between Passover, the Old Testament feast of the Jewish faith, And our own New Testament practice of communion, and there are some wonderful connections to be made between those two Thanksgiving dinners. And this Sunday, we want to look at one of the three annual feasts when God called his people to appear in Jerusalem, and that's the Festival of Booths, or the Feast of Booths. Um, In the Jewish language, it's, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, but it's Sukkot, I think, Sukkot. Sometimes it's called the Festival of Tabernacles. Um, But it's not well known, this holiday, to us as New Testament practicing Christians, but guys, I wish it was. I actually gave some thought this week to whether my kids and I might begin practicing this holiday to some extent. Uh, When I was a kid, one of my greatest, fondest childhood memories, every summer we would go for two weeks up to my grandparents' house in Vermont. I grew up in Washington, D.C., And every year, we'd load into the station wagon. This was in those lawless days before seatbelts were required. And my parents would just put down the back seats in the station wagon and put out... This this is true. (laughs) It's too late to call protective services on my parents. They would just roll out um, sleeping bags in the back. And it was like a romper room in the back of our station wagon. And we would just you know, throw some McDonald's Happy Meals in the back, and we were rolling from Washington, D.C. to Vermont. It was fantastic. But we'd get up there, and my grandparents lived in this house on Lake Champlain, just surrounded by woods. And it was as different as could be from the neighborhood I grew up in Washington, D.C. No chain link fences, no neighbors to speak of. It was amazing. But the greatest thing about it was my dad didn't have to work. So we just had his undivided attention all day long. And I remember one of those summers, my dad took me and my brothers out into the woods, and we built a fort. It's a very simple thing. It was not a grand structure, but that effort to build a fort just stands out in my mind as one of the greatest memories of my childhood. Loved it. Grabbing trees and, oh, let's use these bushes for this. And we were making a fireplace and we can put this here in case somebody attacks us. Boys always imagine, what if we're attacked, right? (laughs) We're we're building a fort in about the safest place on planet Earth. And we were like, what if pirates come? You never know. (laughs) So we were prepared. But in the Festival of Booths, and I'm going to read this to you, but it might be lost because it's in kind of biblical language, but here's what God commanded his people to do. For seven days, they were supposed to go out as a family and build a structure made out of sticks and live in it. That's awesome. (laughs) Guys, that brings out the little boy in me. 
And I know some of you dads would be like, you would build better structures for the festival of booths than you actually live in. Like, <laughs> people would be like going to Lowe's and spending thousands of, and knowing us as Americans, this would become the most expensive holiday of the year. We'd be building these amazing palaces out in the woods. But I think in spirit, that's not what it was supposed to be at all. I'm going to go ahead and read to you when God ordained the holiday, the Feast of Booths. He says this, Leviticus 23. I'm going to read verses 33 and 34 and then skip down to 39 just in the interest of time. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. And then verse 39 On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days." You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever. Throughout your generations, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God." Now, this is a Thanksgiving dinner. I think this is probably the closest that we come in the Bible to something that actually resembles our own celebration of Thanksgiving. I'll explain. This fell on the 15th day of the Jewish month of Tishri, which is the seventh month. They had a different calendar than we do. And uh, this fell right at the end of harvest, It came annually at the conclusion of the harvest season, just as our Thanksgiving does. It was really an agricultural holiday in spirit and flavor when it was practiced among the first people to do this. So it came annually at the conclusion of the harvest. There was often a lot of traveling involved in this holiday, just as our Thanksgiving does. It was a time of feasting and getting together with family. And importantly, it was a time when all the people were called to express gratitude back to God for his many blessings. And I think, the booth, I think this word booth is very strange. I don't know why my Bible translates it strange. Uh, another word that sometimes is used is tabernacle. When I think of booth, I think of like a kiosk in the mall or something. <laughs> but a booth, I think what's just meant here is sort of a a very irregular, rough structure made out of temporary materials. It's not not a permanent dwelling you're making. You're just grabbing some sticks out of the woods and building a a hut. That's essentially what they did. And the word that they use in my Bible, and in many translations, is booths. Sometimes it's tabernacle. Um, Tent is sometimes a word that is used. But just the idea of a crude, temporary, I I say crude, that's my word, not the Bible. (laughs) I imagine it. How could it not be crude? I don't know. But he commands his people to live in these booths, these structures that they would build. And this was done to bring to mind those years of desert wandering when they had lived in dependence on God in the wilderness 
without a fixed place to dwell in. God's purpose in bringing the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness was to show his power and his love for his people so that they would always look to him as their provider and they would always trust him as their guide and so that they would always rest in him as their protector and that they would always obey him as their Lord. Those years of wandering in the desert were used by God to shape his people into a people who would look to him in trust, look to him as their source and supply, and depend upon him. And this feast is an annual reminder of the God who met their needs in the past so they would not let go of him in the present. This is a very important practice, I believe. Consider with me the wisdom of God and how he ordained the timing of this annual feast. The harvest has been brought in from the fields. And in agrarian society like theirs, this is payday. It was a time of abundance and prosperity. Every barn and shed was full, or if not full, it was as full as it was going to be. And it's precisely here, at this moment, that God calls them to go live like they're homeless. (laughs) Your barns are full, your bank accounts are flush, go out and remember the God who met you in the desert, who guided you through it. There's great wisdom in this. He is the God who caused manna to fall from the heavens. He is the God who brought forth water from a rock when you were thirsty. And this practice of remembering their provider God would have been wise and helpful in years when the harvest was lean because it would have reminded them, powerfully reminded them, that God had brought them through bad times before. It's going to be okay. Your God is still on the throne. He is still your provider God. He is still the shepherd you look to. Don't put your confidence in the harvest. And as helpful as it would be in a lean year, I would argue it's even more helpful and wise when the harvest was excellent and every bank account was flush because it would have guarded hearts against the temptation to put their trust in material abundance instead of their provider God. So here is this annual occasion. Whether the harvest is good or bad, remember where your hope, where your trust lies. To whom do you look for your source and supply? God's people. And so right here at this very moment, when hopes are fulfilled or dashed, God says, yeah, but remember. (laughs) Come out and live in an Eeyore structure for seven days. Remember Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh? He'd build the things made. That's how I picture it in my head. 
And of course, this is a great concern of God. He spoke to them about this very thing when they were in the desert. In Deuteronomy 6, he says this, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full... Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord. This is a, this is a powerful statement. Uh, right now, guys, and I've made this point on other Sundays before, but if you took all of the human beings on planet Earth, and you boiled down, them down to 100 representative people. Six of them would be Americans and they'd have half the money. That's an astounding stat. It's absolutely true. We live in the midst of great material prosperity. And I have inherited a United States filled with freeways I didn't build. Skyscrapers I had nothing to do with their construction. I live in the midst of an economy that I've benefited from, but in no way built. <laughs> I'm the inheritor of cities I didn't build, houses I didn't build, vineyards I didn't plant. And this is a word for the American church today, living as we do in the midst of great abundance. When we eat and are full, are we going to forget God? I think this is one of the, really just one of the great wise things that was given to us by generations past that we have this national holiday of thanksgiving. And if we keep it well, it can have a similarly, similarly reorienting effect on God's people living in these days when we might look to God again as our source and our supply. Whether today is lean or fat for you, I don't know what it is. This has value. The practice of thanksgiving guards the heart against some dark temptations. The symbolism in this Old Testament feast is rich for us as New Testament believers who are living, as it were, between our Red Sea deliverance in Christ that was accomplished on the cross and the Jordan River entering into the promises of God when Jesus returns. You see, you were brought out by a miracle. God delivered you through a, through a miracle. And he has made promises to you which are true. With God, performance is the exact same as promise. What he says he will do. And so you can rest in his future promises even though you do not yet have them in hand because he's the one who made them. And so we live in these days between what Jesus has accomplished for us in the past and that we believe we've been brought out, but we have not yet fully entered into the promised land that's promised to us, the new Jerusalem and earth made new, heaven and pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore. So do you know where that puts you today? Right smack dab in the desert. We're wandering. We're living in these days where we have, we have no fixed dwelling like the one that's been promised to us, the one that Jesus is preparing for us. Every house you live in 
is a temporary structure. It's a, it's a booth. My house in Washburn, it's a tabernacle, a booth. It's a temporary thing. But there is a permanent dwelling. There is a permanent city whose architect is God. And I'm looking forward to that place. But these are days of wandering and temporariness. And so, yeah, guys, we need to be a people who look to God and depend upon him as our source and supply in the middle of these days while we wait to enter in. And so this, has, this is rich with significance for us, this Thanksgiving, and in these days that we're living in. Whereas the Thanksgiving of Passover seems designed to remind us of how God addressed our greatest need in salvation, the festival of booths, the feast of booths, this Thanksgiving dinner, seems designed more to celebrate how God promises to be with us in the midst of these days and provide our lesser needs. And there is something very, very practical and needed at the root of this annual call for the people to remember with gratitude what God had done for them in the past. I feel burdened uh, every Thanksgiving to share this uh, detail only because, guys, it has radically changed my, my life. Um, and so I, I, when God showed me this, it was just so enormously helpful. Um, I, like you, probably all of us in this room, to some degree, um, struggle with worry. I know you do because you're human beings <laughs> and because in, in my time living among human beings, I have not met anyone who doesn't struggle with this to some degree. I've come to see that thanksgiving, though not the opposite of worry, is the cure for it. This is a bit counterintuitive at first, but let me, let me show you how to get there. Um, and I think this is part of why God instituted this feast every year, so that the people would look to God and trust rather than worry. Do you guys remember around this time last year, we were having an eight-week conversation as a church about fear. And what we learned there during that time, and we saw it week after week after week, is that the reason why you feel fear is because you're not God. Think of it. If you were like God, equal to him in divine power and sovereignty, and you knew all things, and you could do all things, whatever you willed you could do, you would have no fear. You'd have no fear of the unknown because you knew all things. You'd have no fear about not having enough to meet a need because you're God. First of all, you have no needs. <laughs> Second of all, you have no, sort, no shortage of supply. You wouldn't feel caught up and borne along as a helpless piece of human debris in the today's events because you would be sovereign and in control. If you were godlike, you would have no fears. But here's the thing. All of us in our fears, I fear, well, I fear, I shouldn't, well, that was a poor, poor choice of words. I'm concerned that all of us in our fears are like sheep who wish we were shepherd-like. In our fears, we say, man, I wish I was like, like a god. 
Well, here's the good news. You don't have God-like powers, but you do have a God. And that's the point. That's why you were made not God-like. That who God is might be glorified in your dependence and your trust on Him. Now, what does all this have to do with thanksgiving? I'll show you. I'll try to be brief. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 is a text I find helpful to illustrate what I want to show you. Um, It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's what we want. (laughs) If you're somebody this morning who's struggling with anxiety, fear, concern, whatever word you want to use, when you wake up at 2 in the morning and you cannot go back to sleep because consciousness rushes in and you're burdened with so many things, what you want is the peace of God that guards your hearts and your mind. How do you get there? Are these just high and lofty words that lack any real practical teeth? I don't think so. What Paul lays out for us here are three things that are necessary to confront fear, anxiety. The first, he says, is don't be anxious about anything. Let's call it what it is. It's sin. The fears I feel are rooted in disbelief, are rooted in a lack of faith, and although they might be understandable, although you might extend compassion and empathy towards me in my fear, let's be square, I'm sinning. That's a sin. Don't be anxious about anything. That's a command from God, and a violation of God's commands is sin. So let's first call it what it is. Then having done that, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Okay? You, you're not God-like, but you do have a God. You have somebody to go to with what you need. Take it to him. Take it to him. Um, and he's the God of the shallows and the deep. I think sometimes we have things that are worrying us, and we look at our problems, and we look out at the world, and we say, well, other people have much bigger problems. I won't bring my problem to God, which really betrays a very small view of God. It truly does. If you go to the emergency room, they have a triage system where they evaluate patients and assign you care based on how, on how, important, on how difficult your case is. They do that because they only have so many doctors, they only have so many beds, they only have so many hours in a day. They're finite. When we say to God, you have a triage system for our prayers, we're saying that you're limited. You're saying you're small, there's only one God out there. I'm not going to bother you with my problem because undoubtedly somewhere there's somebody with bigger ones. Really what that's saying is in your mind you're saying, God, you're small. It's not true. He is the God of the shallows and the deep. And here in this verse, God says to us in his word, in everything, (laughs) 
everything by prayer and supplication. In everything, everything, guys, believe it. He is not less concerned with your car trouble because somebody somewhere doesn't have a car at all. He's concerned with both, and he's capable of that. He is the God of the shallows and the deep. So, yes, we need to bring our request to God in everything. Prayer is a calling out from our poverty to God's abundance, our weakness to his strength. The very act of prayer confesses faith in God. Prayer is the moment when we stop scheming in the flesh and marshalling our resources and coming up with plans and turning in your beds. And it's the moment when you look to God as the solution and turn in faith to your dad, to the shepherd. Now, here's the point I want to come to, and that's, I think, probably the most important out of all three of these things I want to show you. It is not enough to cast your anxieties away. It's not enough to say that sin what I'm doing and I hate it. And it's not enough even just to talk to God about what your needs are. That seems like a strange statement to make, but it's not where God leaves us here because he says to do this with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the third and the active ingredient in this whole cocktail of stuff that's thrown together here to help us confront us in our fears. And it's what um, has uh, bearing on this Feast of Tabernacles annually. This is where Thanksgiving comes in. If you empty your hands of something, it creates a vacuum almost. Uh, The best example, I think I've used this example before, but um, let me just do this, uh, even though if you've heard it. If you go to a child at bedtime, and they're crying, and you sit down next to the bed, and you say, what's wrong? And they say, there's a monster, I think, in my closet. And so you go, and you open the closet and say, see, no, it's not there. Every parent knows exactly what to do at this moment. If my child is crying because they fear a monster, I don't sit there and talk to them about monsters. (laughs) You know? If I have a kid and he's crying and I go sit down and he says, I'm afraid there's a boogeyman under the bed, and I said, boy, that's what you're worried about? Let me tell you about nuclear war. You're worried there's some monster in your closet? Have you heard of Ebola? No parent does that. Because as soon as you say there's no monster, there's a vacuum in that child's mind. And if you don't fill it with something else, they will fill it with another monster. Or they'll just come circle back to the first monster. So every parent knows this intuitively we say there is no monster and your dad is here. That's what every parent says. There's nothing under your bed and I'm going to be down the hall talking to your mom. If you need anything, I'll hear you and come. That's what you do. Now, when 
the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, don't be anxious, but in everything bring your stuff to God with thanksgiving, he is inviting them to rest their minds on who God is. This is the critically important piece that I think so many Christians miss. A couple nights ago, I woke up at 2.30. I could not go back to sleep because instantly my mind was flooded with things that caused me to feel anxiety, fear, dread. And I'm sitting there tossing and turning. God, I just want this to go away so I can go back to sleep. Couldn't do it. The only cure I know is to speak back to God the wonderful things he's done. It's the only cure I know, brothers and sisters. When I am filled with a dread anxiety about the world, I can speak back to God what he did in Esther's day. When I'm filled with a deep dread and anxiety about some great need I have or my family has, a material need, I can talk back to God and say, you are the God who caused water to spill out from a rock. You are the God who caused food to fall from the sky when there was none. You are the God who filled the widow's jar of oil for all those days. You are the God who parted the Red Sea. You are the God who met my deepest need on the cross and who certainly now, after purchasing me at such a great expense, you won't get stingy with your child. (laughs) And then, having expressed that thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he's done, guys, I really do feel a mysterious peace settle over my heart. And that is not hyperbole. That is not empty. That is true. But I think what I did for so many years, my practice was, I would say, God, I know it's sinful that I don't trust you more, but this is my problem, and this is my problem, and this is my problem. And perversely, by just only talking about my problems, I became more obsessed with my problems in God's presence. And they became a bigger bully. And it was only when God showed me these two words with thanksgiving that I learned a new way to pray and was helped mightily. And I want you to know that too. We're preparing our hearts for thanksgiving. God actually called his people to go live in a pile of sticks for a week so that they as a nation would be reminded of the great things he'd done for them. And I think when I, as a sheep, I, you know, I think it's, I wish that God and his word compared human beings to a cooler animal, but he just didn't. We're sheep. I have a short memory. I'm easily spooked. And so God calls us often to remember. Do you, have you, I mean, if you stop to see in the Bible how many times God calls us to be a people who remember, communion being one, several times in the Bible, God says, make a pile of stones right here so that generation after generation, you'll remember. <laughs> remember, remember, remember. 
And of course, we need to remember. It's good for us to be reminded. But this Thanksgiving, don't just focus on what we're short of. And don't just focus on the fullness of the barn. But draw before the Lord and speak back to him with gratitude, the amazing things he's done, not only in your own life, but also in Scripture. And, and test God in this. See if you don't experience a peace that passes understanding. I have found it very, very helpful, and I think we can see this here in the Feast of Booths. Well, with that, I think I'm going to draw this to a conclusion. I would just add this, though, at the tail end of this time. Uh, for several weeks now, I've been putting a challenge in front of folks, and some people have told me they're praying about it. But I believe that we as God's people need very much to hear each other's stories. Uh, here in this room right now, I think there are people who have come through seasons where God provided for them in amazing ways. And I don't want you to just sit on that story. Uh, we are not reservoirs of God's blessings were conduits of his blessings. Do you know why the Dead Sea is dead? It's because it never flows out. Stuff flows into the Dead Sea from up above, but it has no outlet. And so all the stuff builds up there and never goes away, and it's toxic. And I think there's some, a similar principle in the Christian life where God just pours into us and we never open our mouths and speak praise to what he's done. We never become a conduit of his blessings, just a recipient. And that's not the fullness of what God would have us be together. And so I put a challenge out in front of you again. I know and I believe that here in this room, there is somebody who's very uncomfortable that I'm doing this right now because God has put something on your heart to share and you hate the idea of speaking publicly or you're not sure you'll have the right words. We're a community that gets it. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Just if God has given you something to say among God's people, some tale of his goodness to you, a tale of how God provided for you in a very difficult season, or maybe you're in a difficult season right now and you don't know how God's going to supply, but you're just learning to trust. Whatever it is, I, I think we need to hear among one another the story of what God is doing in our lives. So I'll put it out there one more time. Well, not one, well, lots more times. This isn't going away. <laughs> to, yeah, I want to hear your story. I think we, more than I want to, I think we need to. We have no metrics in the church to measure what matters most. We just don't. Uh, I shared with you that in the last business year, the word count of my sermons is equal to Mo Moby Dick. That's a lot of words. I don't know if it did anything. We have lots of people who are serving in many wonderful ways, who are wondering what comes of it all. We don't have any way to measure it, but what we do have is your testimony of what God's doing in your life. And so in, a, in the spirit of thanksgiving, I would love it if some of you would prayerfully consider being brave and sharing your story in front of God's people. We need to hear it. Amen? All right, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
I just thank you for this reminder, for confronting us with the Feast of Booths. And God, I, I wish this was a holiday that we still did. Not sure why we don't. Father, I love the idea of annually living in such a structure and remembering those years of desert wandering when you provided when there was no fixed dwelling place. And Father, we as a people look forward to a city whose architect is God, whose foundations were built by you. And God, as we live in the midst of these days that are so permeated with need, God, we have broken bodies, broken dreams. God, we have all kinds of relational brokenness. God, we live in the midst of this wreckage in this fallen world, and we are wandering, and we're, God, need to remember. We need to remember what you've done in the past so we don't let go of you in the present. And we look forward with hope and with anticipation to the truth of your promises. And so, God, this Thanksgiving... God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, not only for the gifts, but for you, the giver. God, your gifts are good, but you, oh God, you are excellent. And God, we love you. God, we thank you for the gift of our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we, living in the midst of this scary place, though we're not God-like, we are not lacking a God. And you have made wonderful promises to us, promises of a future that it yawns out into eternity. God, help us cling to that promise. Father, if the Lord should tarry, and I hope he doesn't, God, I hope the return of Jesus comes soon. Father, if he does tarry, though, eventually we will all die. But God, we look forward as Abraham did seeing from afar what has been promised and believing. God, your promises are true. And Father, as we remember back with thanksgiving the great things you have done, not only in your word, but also that we've experienced in our own lives, God, I pray that you would guard our hearts with that peace that passes understanding no matter what's going on. God, we must trust you even for the ability to trust. And we ask you to give us that in great measure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.